seated. Uh, our sermon text this morning is uh, Matthew ten sixteen through forty two, and it's on pages uh, eight fifteen through eight sixteen in your pew Bible. I uh, hear the word of God. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. When I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, uh, we, we dream of a kingdom where joy writes the songs and where the innocent sing them. And we dream of that kingdom because you've given that dream to us. And that is your kingdom. The joy one day will write all the songs and the innocent who've been washed, who've been cleansed, who've been freed will sing the songs that you have written. Oh Lord, we want, we want to sing of your great love today. We want to sing on both sides of this pulpit. We want to worship you. We want to make music and melody with our lives now. And this is an amazing a story that you've told us about yourself and uh, your disciples. And we pray that, that you would bring forth now the music of the gospel, not only from this text, but also from our own hearts. For my brothers and sisters, draw. I pray that you'll draw it out. And for those who are not yet reconciled to you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you will start that music today and enable them to hear it and enable them to follow it into your arms so that this might be the day of their salvation. I pray in your name. Amen. Uh, Matthew 10, uh, I find, uh, or, or more precisely, uh, Jesus, uh, deeply disturbing. It makes me extremely uncomfortable Um, I love how the logic that carries us to Matthew 10 starts at the end of chapter 9 where Jesus looks out at the crowds and has compassion on them and uh, that's because he sees that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I love that. I love the the vision of Jesus' compassion and how he responds to the lostness of the world. I love uh, where that begins. I love uh, where it, how it continues that Jesus then takes his disciples uh, around and says, uh, look at the harvest, it's plentiful and uh, the labors are few, all right? So, so pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out labors into his harvest. In other words, Jesus is compa- he's transmitting his compassion, right, to his disciples and, and uh, the Lord of the harvest uh, then assembles the disciples at the beginning of, of chapter 10 and calls them and gives them authority in his name to carry out mission in his name. I love that. To, to be, and we've thought together and we've worshipped the Lord together thinking about how amazing it is that this uh, high king of heaven uh, would come to save us and then appoint us his ambassadors, his ministers plenipotentiary in the earth. What dignity he gives us. I love that. I love how, how we then become, in Jesus' design, how we as his people become the, the presence and reality and extension of his compassion in the world. I love that. But when I see and I hear and I read as I do in Matthew 10, that this mission of compassion and this appointment as Jesus' ambassador comes at great costs, great costs of suffering and hardship and rejection by men and uh, uh, separation from families and shame and even death itself for his namesake. Well, then, uh, quite frankly... Uh, I'm shaken, and I'm shamed. 
when I consider the weakness of my own love for him and the in and out, up and down, floating nature of my resolve to belong fully to him. Him whose compassion for me came at infinitely higher cost to him than mine in his service will ever cost me. And if I'm being honest, I'm also afraid of you. Not just a shaken and shame, but afraid of you. Afraid that you're not going to like what I have to say. And so you won't come back. I know the fear that Jesus commands me to dismiss and to despise the temptation to fear the approval of men more than I fear the approval of God, even as I stand before you to preach from this text to you. Because the costs of discipleship are not popular. And friends, the only turn uh, for my heart comes in seeing and thinking about who Jesus is as he reveals himself in this chapter. The one who shakes me is the one who shelters me. And what he's about in this chapter is the power of love. This chapter is about the power of love. The power of love and its connection with our calling from him to be his witnesses and to join his mission. And that's what I want to think about with you this morning, the power of love, three ways that that power of love works. First of all, the power of love that compels our witness, the power of love that compromises our witness, and the power of love that propels our witness. Compels, compromises, and propels. The power of love. Let's look first at the power of love that compels our witness. And let me begin here by saying that, by observing what you have already read in the text, which is that, is that uh, when Jesus, what Jesus joins together, uh, none of us should ever try to put asunder, okay? Uh, when Jesus joins two things together, it should never be uh, our, uh, we should never feel uh, it's our right to put them asunder. And what he puts together in this passage is that love of the truth of Jesus necessarily and always goes together in his mind with love, the love of telling the truth about Jesus. And that in Jesus' mind, there could never be a separation between those two things. That it w- he cannot imagine, the Jesus of Matthew 10 cannot imagine a loving the truth about him without also loving to tell that truth about him. Okay? And it works the other way. You will only love to tell the truth about him if you love the truth about him. And if you really love the truth about him, you will love to tell the truth about him. And we learn that from Jesus. Because that's true about Jesus. Jesus is his own a chief witness. Jesus loves to be his own witness. That's the first thing that we see in this chapter. No one loves the truth about Jesus more than Jesus does, and no one loves to tell the truth about Jesus more than Jesus does. Did you notice how, how, how aggressive Jesus is, how insistent he is in this passage in pushing his own ultimacy across at his disciples? Do you notice the very high view that he has of himself throughout uh, this passage? He's really telling us his story. 
He's telling us his autobiography, and he loves the truth. If you look at the details of this autobiography, he loves this truth, my friends, that he is the decisive figure in world history. Do you see that? He identifies himself in verse 23, which we looked at last week, as the Son of Man, who is the one from Daniel 7 who receives all the kingdoms of the earth and all peoples of the earth are going to serve him. And he is identifying himself as the most decisive figure in world history, and he loves that about himself. And then you notice in verse 34, he, he has this vision of his mission that sweeps the entire earth up, right? Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He's speaking like one who has authority over the whole planet. He loves that truth about himself. He also loves the truth about himself that he is the decisive central figure in every relationship that we have and in every single household. Did you notice how twice he puts himself in the center of your living room and your kitchen table and says, I am the most important person in this family. I am more important than your family. He says a person's in verse 21, right? He's realistic. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. That's because of your identification with Jesus. It's for my name's sake, right? And then going on over to verse 36, right? Or verse 35, For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He's not saying that families are bad. What he's saying is that families were never meant by God to be king. Families are supposed to serve the king. Your fathering is supposed to serve the king. Your daughter-in-lawing is supposed to serve the king. Your highest loyalty can never be to your your biological or your nuclear family. Jesus is saying your highest loyalty needs to be to me, and he loves to declare that about himself. It's breathtaking. He loves the truth about himself, that, not, that heaven itself is going to bear witness to his worth, that the Father and the Spirit, right, are going to testify of who he is through his disciples. Did you see that in verses 19 and 20? When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Again, this delivering over is for his name's sake right? Uh, Verse 18, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. That's very comforting, but look at what he says in verse 20. Who's going to give it? For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Speaking through the disciple. About what? The disciple? No, about Jesus. Jesus loves the fact that the Trinity, the other two persons in the Trinity, bear witness to his worth. He loves the fact of the truth about himself that he's worthy of our suffering. Verses 16 through 19. Notice he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Not because I'm cruel, but because I'm worthy of it. He loves the truth about himself. 
that he is worthy of our public shame and our rejection by men. Verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Verses 24 and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And he says right after that, so have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. He loves the truth that he is worthy of our deaths. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and a father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. He loves the truth, not only that he's worthy of our death, but that he has power over death, friends. Look at verses 22, right? And, and 39 again, 22 again, you will be hated for, by all for not my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, how can he make that promise unless he has power on the other side of death? Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's making promises that can only be kept by one who has power over death. And he loves to tell us that. Now, friends, we need to let the force and the weight of these things uh, land on us, that Jesus' testimony about himself is an overwhelming testimony, and we don't have the liberty to mute these things. Jesus is not holding anything back. And friends, if Jesus, like we said last week, if Jesus is anything, he is everything, or he is worse than nothing, but what he can't be is just merely something. C.S. Lewis was right. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. So then the question is this, right? If Jesus loves to tell the truth about himself, and loves the truth about himself, and loves to tell the truth about himself, then... Do we love to tell the truth about Jesus? What about our witness uh, for Jesus? Uh, do, are, we, are we people who love the, the truth about Jesus, but who don't love to tell the truth about Jesus? Are we putting asunder what Jesus has put together? I don't think that any of us, any of us can stand under that question and say, I'm good. Uh, Certainly not me. But friends, that is not what uh, establishes whether or not we need to pay attention to the text. The question is, is that what Jesus is saying to us and calling us to as his disciples? Every element of Jesus' history that he gives us, every element of the story that he tells about himself here, searches our hearts, doesn't it? 
searches our hearts when he, he says, I am the most important figure in world history. I am the most important relationship you have. I have power over death. I am worthy of your suffering. I am worthy of your trials. Heaven itself testifies to my worthiness. When he says those things about himself, those truths expose our hearts, right? Because the word of God is living and active. And who can possibly stand under that scrutiny? Who among us has held and told this truth about Jesus with the passion and the urgency that he obviously has for it. Not a single one. But thanks be to God, that's not where, that's not where the questions end, right? Because what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to follow him. And so I simply want to ask this question of you, my brothers and sisters. Do you want to want what the master wants? And we can start there, can't we? And in order to, if we do want what the master wants, if we do want lives that don't keep asunder these things that Jesus has put together, a love for the truth about Jesus and a love of telling the truth about Jesus, if, if you are broken by this vision of this union that Jesus draws and the way in which your, your own life, just like my life, reflects a gap between those things, that if you want that gap closed because of what you love to be true about Jesus, then friends, we need to think about the next question, which is how the power of love compromises our witness. And what do I mean by that? Well, the power of the love that compromises our witness is not the love of Christ, but it's our loves. And in two ways, I want to think with you about how our love compromises our witness. First, we love too much, and second, uh, we love uh, too little. So let me explain what I mean. We love too much. What do I mean when I say that our witness is compromised because we love too much and that there's a power of love that keeps us from witnessing. Well, let me tell you what it isn't first. What it isn't is that we love people too much. That's not what I'm talking about, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. And you say, well, wait, 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 wait a second, Mike. So many times in this passage, he says, don't be afraid of people. Don't be afraid of men. Don't fear them. Don't worry. Uh, Don't love your family as much as you love me. That implies that we love our family too much. No, that's not what it implies. Fearing men is not the same thing as loving them. Those aren't the same things. Indeed, uh, to the extent that you fear somebody, you you will not be able to love them. So what is it then? What is this love that we love too much? It's, it's, not, it's not the power of our love for men that compromises our witness that Jesus points out here. It's the power of our love for what we think we can get from men. It's not the people that we love too much. It's the goodies that we think the people hold and that we think we need. That's what we love too much. What am I talking about? 
I'm talking about identity. I'm talking about acceptance. I'm talking about validation. I'm talking about vindication. I'm talking about safety. I'm talking about belonging. I'm talking about getting our worth from other people. Now, when you think about the relationships where you have, like me, been too timid to share the truth of Christ, when you peel the onion back of your motivations and your reluctance, are not those things somewhere in the equation? You're afraid of being criticized. You're afraid of being a fool. You're, being af- you're afraid of being thought a zealot. You're, being af- you're afraid of being rejected. You're, being afra- you're afraid of being excluded. Friends, that's what you love too much. It's not the people. In fact, I remember what Jesus said uh, two weeks ago that we looked at in verse 8, right? You have received without paying. Give without pay. And Jesus is, remember Jesus saying, when, when he binds us to himself, he binds us to the world that he loves and he makes us the debtors of the world. And you and I, if we think that we enter into relationships in the posture of a creditor where we need to get uh, some kind of acceptance or approval or safety or validation or belonging or even family membership and those things from the people, then we are not in the posture of a debtor before them. We are in the posture of a collector, of a creditor. And to the extent we are in that posture, we will not give them the gospel. In fact, not only are we not loving those people, but friends, we're using them. We're using them to give us and to get for us the things that Jesus gives us. Who is the Lord who speaks into your life, Christian? your new identity. Who is it who says to you, Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Who is it who says to you, Christian, Rise, take your pallet with you. Your sins are forgiven you. Who is it who says to you, God is your father? It is not your family members. It is not your Friends, it is not society, it's not your employer, it's not your neighbor. No, all these things come to us. Jesus means to be the exclusive supplier of them. It's from him that we get our validation. It's from him that we get our acceptance. It's from him that we get our belonging. It's from him that we get our safety. Friends, you notice how Throughout this passage, Jesus is essentially drawing the picture of an exodus where we, we are essentially ejected out of a home among men. And we're condemned in a human court. And we're isolated from people. But on the other side, there's a picture of a different household, isn't there? We're members of the master's household, verse 24 and 25. There's another household. There's another family, right, where God is our father. 
And there are other brothers and sisters, right, who knew brothers and sisters who, who have been joined together with Jesus and who experience exactly the same thing. And not only is there an earthly court, but there's a heavenly court where we're vindicated, right, where Jesus represents us and where he witnesses to our true identity. Friends, you see the picture in Matthew 10 that Jesus is drawing is there's, there is, he means to be the source of all these things that we use people for. And we should never mistake that we are using them and not loving them. Friends, we don't, we we love the goodies too much and we don't love the people enough. That's the bottom line. I will not talk to somebody about Jesus' true identity or I will only speak to somebody about Jesus' true identity to the degree that I don't need them for mine. I will only uh, speak to someone of Jesus' worth to the extent that I don't need them to tell me how much I'm worth. I will only be free to tell others who Jesus is to the degree that I do not need them to tell me who I am or to provide for me. In fact, I will not share the truth about Christ with anyone unless I love them enough to love them less than I love Jesus. I will not share the gospel with someone unless I love them enough to love them less than I love Jesus. Well, what's going to keep, what's going to make that love? What's going to produce that love? It's the power of love that propels our witness, our third point, and this is Jesus' love. Jesus' love for us. You know, as I thought about this passage over and over again, I just kept coming back to the wonder of verse 32. So everyone, I mean, this is just an amazing image. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus is saying, I am the foundation for your witness for me is that I'm your witness. I'm your advocate. I'm your ambassador in heaven. And, and your ambassadorship for me on earth is, is meant to be the fruit of my ambassadorship for you, my advocacy, my high priestly ministry for you in heaven. I'm never going to deny you before my Father who is in heaven. And that confidence, that wonder, that, that this great one would represent me before God in heaven is meant to grip me with a confidence and to ground me and you too, my brothers and sisters. That's where our witness needs to grow out of this amazing wonder to take verse 32 as a promise that Jesus not only makes, but then buys with his blood and seals. It's his oath to you, my brother and sister. Do you know why I don't talk to, uh, spend more time with non-Christians? I thought about this this week. It's because I don't spend enough time at the foot of the cross. There's only one love 
that can propel me to move toward somebody. It's the love of Christ that has moved toward me. And the reason I don't spend more time with non-Christians is because I don't spend more time at the foot of the cross. The reason I am paralyzed with fears of what the costs and the losses will be for speaking up about Christ in his name is that I am not more amazed at the foot of the cross by the costs and the losses that he willingly incurred for me and the gifts and the bounty that he bought with those costs and that he bought with those losses. It's the fact that I do not spend enough time here at the foot of the cross amazed at what Jesus has done, who he is, and what he promises. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that the reason I don't talk to unbelievers is because of my own unbelief. You see, the gospel doesn't shock me. The gospel doesn't uh, drive me with urgency. It does. The, I take God's love for granted. I take Christ's sacrifice for granted because I'm not standing at the foot of the cross again. I'm not lingering over the reality of what Jesus has done for me and who he is. I'm not lingering over the reality that God is to be feared because he can destroy both body and soul in hell. This amazing portrait of the Father, who is the holy authority over all of life, and yet with respect to his children, has numbered all the hairs of our head, and, our, and has the time and manner and means of our death fully into his control, so that if a sparrow's death doesn't, doesn't happen apart from the will of his, of our Father, then how much less ours? We are so secure. And at the foot of the cross, we learn these things. You see, unless I am replenished daily, unless I am having my vision cleared again daily for what Jesus has done for me, oh yeah, I might, I might start to witness, all right. But I'll do it out of self-love. I'll do it out of fear. I'll do it out of guilt. I'll do it out of pride. Hey, I'm, I'm, at least I'm doing it. Well, here's the good thing about being in this church. The person who's the worst at it is your pastor. So you're always going to be better than me. Jesus doesn't want witnesses who witness out of pride or fear. He doesn't want witnesses who witness out of self-love. You see, he's telling a different story in this chapter He's telling a story, uh, really his own story, which is beneath ours. You know, it's very interesting when you read this chapter. Did you notice how many aspects of it sound like what you know Jesus' own experience is going to be? This chapter really is Jesus' autobiography before it's ours. He's describing not just the power of his love and his worth, which we saw at the beginning of the chapter, but he's also describing his own suffering as he describes his disciples' suffering. This is what has compelled me so much from this chapter. This is, this is why chapter 10 is, I think, 
uh, teaching us about the power of Jesus' love that propels our witness. Remember, um, though the disciples didn't understand it or appreciate it at the time Jesus taught these things, Jesus knew everything that he was going to do. Jesus said these things in the shadow of his own cross. All the deeds and all the words of Jesus before the cross anticipated his cross. So he knows that underneath all these commands and all these warnings that he's giving to his disciples in Matthew 10, he knows that there's a foundation underneath all these things that he's calling them and us to do and that he is going to lay that foundation in his own suffering and in his own death and it will be a foundation that will stand the test of time, that will uphold every single one of his people who trust him until he returns. And we, standing on the side of the cross that we are, we can see it. We can begin to see it. Look at verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, if that word follow wasn't in there, we'd be crushed, right? Whoever does not take his cross is not worthy of me. What if that's all it said? Well, we'd be crushed. But that word follow, do you see what it means? It means he's looking forward that he's going to go first. Because he says, follow me. I'm going to be the first one to the cross. And it's only because I will be the first one that you can face this command with confidence, fear, and trembling hope. But, But there's a foundation, the foundation for your cross. I'm laying it at the price of my own life, and it's going to be there. I just find this absolutely incredible. See, every single syllable of the Bible is charged with the glory of Jesus Christ. He is the center. He is the hero. He is the fulfillment of everything. All the strands come together in him, not just of prophets and not just of the narratives in the Old Testament, but even in his own teaching. And what he calls us to that's hard here is is what he is already committing himself to do, right? And what we know he already has done. He doesn't say, take up your cross or you're not worthy of me. He says, take up your cross and follow me as I take up mine. Think about it. Go back to verse 16. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, friends, the sender in verse 16 is is the sent one before he's the sender, right? The one who sends his disciples out as, as sheep in the midst of wolves is the one who's come as the Lamb of God, right? Who was sent by his Father. Sent by his Father, innocent as a dove, vulnerable as a lamb, wiser than anyone on earth. 
He, the one who sends his disciples out, is the one who himself was sent first and prayed upon by the world. Friends, he is not like a general at some headquarters far away from the front line saying, go there. He's saying, follow me after I go there first. He is vulnerable when he comes to earth. I mean, think about that. He is God. How can you have a hard thought about this God if when he comes in his clearest self-revelation, he is vulnerable before us? He came, friends, not only as the sender, the sent one, but he came to give his life for men, not to get it from them. He calls us to do everything for his name's sake, right? He tells us in verse 17, beware of men, beware of men. And in John 2, John has a very interesting comment at the end of John 2. It says, Jesus didn't entrust himself to men. You know this verse because Jesus knew what was in men. He didn't need anyone to tell him what was in men. In other words, John's saying, Jesus did not come to live off the applause and praise of the world because he knew how shallow and flimsy it was. He knew that in comparison to his father's approval, right, in comparison to what the father declared from heaven, ripped the sky open and shouted from heaven, this is my beloved son, and in him I am well pleased. He knew as a man and as the son of God that that's what you live for. So he didn't need the approval of the world. He didn't need to get his life from the world. He had come to give his life for the world. It didn't matter to him if people called him Beelzebul, which is essentially calling him Satan. I mean, think about that. The world's opinion of Jesus in verse 25 is 180 degrees from the truth, right? And how offensive do you think that would be to take the name of Jesus in vain like that and have him be called Beelzebul? And you know what? He, didn't, he wasn't getting his life from the approval of men, so their criticism and their condemnation didn't ruin him because he had not come to get his life from men, but to give his life for men. He knew who he was. He knew his father knew who he was, and he knew that one day the entire world would know who he was. He was delivered over into the hands of religious authorities, right? The high priest and the Sanhedrin, verses 17 and 18. He was dragged before a Gentile governor, Pilate, and before a king, Herod. He was tried and convicted before his disciples ever would be in kangaroo courts, right? And he was rejected and betrayed by those closest to him, Judas, and even rejected within his own family by his own brothers, who the Apostle John tells us did not believe in him, John 7, 5. And ultimately, more than anything else, it was his father who delivered him over to the cross. The cross is not an accident, but the fruit of his father's design and Jesus's willing submission to his father's design, because it was the only way that the glory of God could be upheld in answering God's justice and in displaying the love of God. 
without compromising any of it. And Jesus was willing to undergo that separation, to be forsaken by all while forsaking none. See, that's the portrait of the disciples that he gives. He's calling his disciples to be forsaken by all while forsaking none. And that's his story before it's ours. He was hated by all for our name's sake. Why did Jesus suffer ultimately? Because of the sins of his people. Right? He was numbered with transgressors and sinners. He was called a wine-bibber, right? And a glutton. He was called all the things that we are. And finally, on the cross, he was willing to be called forsaken, desolate, not just by men, but by his own father. And there he was, friends. There he was. What Calvary was, there at Calvary, Jesus hung all alone. He was utterly isolated and he was desolate, hanging alone between earth and heaven, forsaken and rejected by men. And yes, even forsaken and rejected by his father when he had become in the fullness of being transformed into sin, the very thing he knew his father hated most. Willing to bear that cost for us in order that he might rise in triumph and ascend to heaven, that he might confess his people before his Father. Willing to be under the shadow of his Father's rejection, and yes, even his Father's hatred on the cross, this is my Son in whom I am infinitely displeased at that moment. And yet, you know what's amazing? Though he was forsaken by men, forsaken by the earth, and forsaken by his Father, not once did Jesus forsake either side. He did not forsake the men whose sins he bore and who forsook him. He endured to the end. Nor did he forsake his Father who had called him into that suffering and into that desolation. No, even when he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is taking up by faith the words of his father. Friends, Jesus in the heart of darkness on the cross under God's wrath is worshiping. He's submitting himself as a man to the word of God and he's laying hold by faith of the full vision of Psalm 22, trusting God when God has forsaken him that his forsakenness will result in salvation going to the entire earth. Read Psalm 22 this afternoon. Jesus never forsook his father. He endured to the end. You see the power of his love, friends, which we see when we stand at the foot of the cross is the only power, the only power that will impel us and propel us outward to move toward people. It's the only love strong enough to free us so that we love others enough to love them less than we love Jesus. And when and to the degree we do, we will love to tell them the truth about Jesus. 
And the only thing that keeps us back is our unbelief. It's not our knowledge. It's not our lack of technique. It's not open doors. Friends, we need to be honest. It's our unbelief. We believe, yes. But Father, help our unbelief. Oh, the power, the power of that love. This is not a fairy tale love. This is a real world love. This is a world renewing love. This is a life changing love. This is a sinner liberating love. This is a disciple compelling love. May the Lord grant us faith to believe and courage and endurance to experience even those losses and costs that he calls us to as gain in his service. Let's pray. Lord, you are the Lord of the harvest. We ask you to send laborers out into your harvest carried there by the power of your love. And we pray in your name. Amen. In response, we're going to sing.